Something that really surprised me as a foster parent is how complex foster parenting is. That's why I'm really thankful that I'm licensed by an incredible agency that goes above and beyond to make sure their foster families are supported. Most foster parents close their home within two years and many quit within their first year. So having extra support is really helpful. I don't think my partner and I would have made it past the two-year mark without our agency's support. Kids Crossing retains more than 80% of their foster families, and I'm really not surprised by this. Kids Crossing has provided us with many free services, including therapy for the kid in our care, parenting coaching, interesting online trainings, in-home family preservation services, and a home coordinator who acts as a buffer between us and the foster care system, and so much more. What's really great is that all of these services are offered in-house by Kids Crossing. So our child's team is all aware of our current challenges and successes, and they all use the same trauma-informed therapeutic model, which means we're all speaking the same language. It's a huge time saver to not have to find all of those services on my own, and it gives me more time to play with the kid in my care. So what are you waiting for? Kids Crossing welcomes diverse and non-traditional families. They have four locations across Colorado, in Denver, Colorado Springs, Pueblo, and La Junta. Learn more at kidscrossing.com. A group of youth and I ended up just leaving. We just left the facility. We just said that we were done. We were not getting any support in this facility. It actually came out a year prior to us staying there that staff members were selling drugs to the youth in this facility. We knew that it was not healthy to stay around. And we actually went to go spend the night in a laundry mat at an apartment complex until somebody picked us up. And then we all went our separate ways, hoping to survive on the streets. We thought that was better than residing in this facility that's being funded by the county. Welcome to Just a Special, the place to learn more about foster care from diverse perspectives. I'm Natasha, a foster mom. And I've been interviewing people for more than 10 years now, and I've never before been speechless during an interview, and I've also never before teared up during an interview, and both of those happen with our guest today. Today's episode is all about the experience of a youth who was once labeled as a danger to others by the foster care system, and what that meant for her, and what that means for the system as a whole. Sophie is a Latinx multimedia artist based in Sacramento, California. She's been voted best of 2021 in foster youth voice advocacy, and she served as a mayoral aide. She was also commissioned by her city to do a public art installation that brought foster care awareness, and we'll discuss that during our interview. Sophie has really dedicated her life to helping youth who find themselves in the position that she once was, and she's held several different child youth welfare activist roles. Sophie is currently 21 years old and majoring in sociology and cinema. A few quick notes about today's episode is that I recorded it when I was under the weather, so you're going to hear that in my voice a little bit, but thank goodness for remote recording. And there's a trigger warning for second trimester pregnancy loss and also a brief mention of grooming. 
And throughout this interview, we've referenced some writing Sophie's done. You can find a link to her full article on our website. Okay, without further ado, let's dive into our conversation together. So one place that I'd really like to dive in is you've written that there's an immense power in those who wind up with the worst case files in the foster care system. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, so so often our youth who have these case files in which put them out to be children who are in danger or an endangerment to others, they feel as if they don't have a voice, that they don't have any say in major problems that we are experiencing in our lives. We're kind of shut out. But what they don't understand is it's those who have actually experienced the most hardship that have the most to say and have the most input in problem solving. So I just wish that those who stereotype these youth to believe or to to think that they just because they have this case file in which has a lot of runaways or, or stealing inside of them, they are essentially going to go into life and just cycle those issues when it's actually quite the opposite. It's a powerful thing to actually be one of those youth who go through the most hardship. Yeah. I mean, imagine how much more effective the system could be if those voices were the voices that were listened to, right? Right. But often they're the voices that are hardly listened to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you've written about, too, how the state of California actually wanted to send you out of the state into one of the most restrictive out-of-home placement called a level 14 group home. And luckily, you were able not to have to do that and to avoid it. But you said it actually really affected your time in the foster care system to even like have that as part of your file. And, you know, you had labels like endangerment and incapable. Can you talk more about that and how that affected your life? Of course. When you enter the foster system, you enter it on a clean slate. And whatever decision you make going forward will be documented, whether it's good or bad. But they seldom add anything having to do with the success of a youth. Basically, if a youth runs away from their foster home, then that will be on the record forever. And having that on their record and presenting it to a potential foster home in the future, that makes the youth look as if they're going to be troublesome, they're going to be hard to raise, and essentially puts them to the side in the foster home stating or the group home stating, we don't want to be housing this youth because we feel like they are an endangerment. So this is a constant cycle that the youth go through in the system, where if they make one mistake, then it essentially defines them for the rest of their lives within the system. And it affected me by, I mean, I got into one fist fight at school that was on my record and whatever homes were available, which would go over my court report, they would see that and say, never mind, push it to the side. And that left me on this path of having to go to shelter, having to go to group homes or locked facilities in which social workers would just leave the cases because they are no longer essentially able to find another placement available for that youth. Yeah, you're so right, because we've also heard this, too, from other former youth in care who've been on our podcast. Actually, on our very first episode, um, a former youth in care talked about how a microwave accident actually haunted her for the rest of her time in care. It was actually so painful, you know, just an accidental leaving a fork in the microwave. She kind of got labeled really troubled and dangerous because of that. Kids, you know, out of care, right? They're making mistakes all the time. And that's not something that 
comes to define them. But like you're talking about in the foster care system, because of all the record keeping, then that one fist fight is something that then so many homes that might have opened themselves up to you, right, chose not to having that. Were you able to spend any time in traditional foster homes? Yes, actually, I spent maybe 80% of my time in the system in foster homes. It was only a few times that I was in a shelter or a group home sort of setting. Can you describe some of your time in traditional foster homes? What was that like for you? Unfortunately, most of my foster homes weren't supportive or healthy environments that I would consider to be suitable for youth growing into our society. But I did have some great foster parents in which helped lead the way for me to find stability within myself. Can you describe what are some of those situations that you felt like really weren't helping you foster yourself for a successful future? And then also on the flip side of that, what are some of those lessons you learned from some foster parents that you feel like really instilled in you some skills that you were able to be successful? Well, I just remember the socialization of a lot of my foster homes just being abusive, more so verbally. The things that they would say to me when I'd come home from school, it's very hard to go from a foster parent telling you, no one will ever love you, and then trying to get to school the next day and concentrate in class and try to be successful when there's these people at home who are stating that you won't amount to anything in this life because you are a child of the system. And then the other part, the other homes I've been in have actually been quite supportive and have said to me, you have talent, you just have to work on this section, or let's try to go through therapy. If you don't want to go through therapy, let's do art. I had a foster parent who was a art professor, and he just helped me get all of my emotions of anger, of questions on why these situations are happening within the system, are occurring onto a piece of paper in an artistic form. And that really helped me in my life amid the tribulations of many foster homes in which weren't so supportive. And also like they they would take things from me which would be donated by people from outside of the system. They would hide them away, stuff like that. So it wasn't just the verbal, but it was just their actions in which were very unsupportive in trying to get me to be successful. Wow. I mean, that's a lot. To have to deal with, especially, you know, as you're growing up. And I feel like especially the teenage years are really hard to find that self-love, even for a child in a stable environment sometimes. You've also written that it just seemed like people gave up on the youth that were in the shelters. And I'm wondering, how did you how did you find that self-love to know that you were worth more than what you were being told a lot of the time? Really, it started with looking at the youth around me. Before it started with me believing I had any potential, I started to see the individuals, the young youth who were around me around the same age as I was at this facility, this locked facility in Sacramento. We were ascribed into this facility as being incapable, as being a danger to others. But as I sat around these youth, 16, 17 years old, on their last ways until they turned to an adult, as I sat with these youth, I just saw all their talents, how funny they were, how they were good at writing, how they were good at communicating. It made me see 
the parts of myself in which had gone unnoticed within the system this entire time. I, I started to see how much actually potential I carried as much as they carried. We had made all these mistakes and had kept these cycles of, of mistakes and choices that we made in which we wouldn't believe, we wouldn't think would define us for the rest of our paths in the system, but essentially did. And of course, it took each of us within each of ourselves to see that we had something to give to this world. And I just actually wish more youth would realize that within themselves. I mean, I, I find it fortunate I was surrounded by so many people my age so I could see exactly what I had been missing all along just by being by myself. Because when we are by ourselves within the system, only surrounded by people who are telling us everything we're doing wrong, then we can't internalize and go through life actually believing that. So it, it was actually a blessing in some ways that I was put into this facility with all these youth who showed me just how amazing foster youth can be if they decide to change things around for themselves. And was that something that you kind of came through more on your own? Or were there youth that were actually telling you like, hey, here's what some of the talents I feel like you have are? We we weren't very vocal about most of these things. We were just supportive of each other in terms of if a youth wanted to set out and complete a project, we would just all come out and support. We, we were never really verbal and stating, you're good at that. Or I, I want to be your friend because of this. Probably because we didn't really know how to communicate in that way. But we just be there for each other if one of us needed something, if that makes any sense. Yeah. I mean, that's really beautiful and amazing that that was able to happen, especially because it sounds like that was something that was really coming from inside all of you because that's not something you were getting externally. Exactly. Exactly. We knew that we were a chosen family from the moment we were put in that facility together. Because once you are, even if you're just placed somewhere and you don't know anybody, you understand that the youth who are residing next to you are going through the same things as well. And they will probably be a main point of contact before anybody else, maybe an adult in that area, because the adult doesn't understand. So that understanding is already there before anything. And it's just like a natural connection, I would say. And so unspoken, right? Like you were talking about, like, it's, you don't even need to express it in words. It's just so obvious to everyone. Exactly. Mm. So how were you able to get out of that facility? Actually, a group of youth and I ended up just leaving. We just left. They call it going AWOL. We just said that we were done. We were not getting any support in this facility. It actually came out a year prior to us staying there, the staff members were selling drugs to the youth in this facility. We knew that it was not healthy to stay around. And we actually went to go spend the night in a laundry mat at an apartment complex until somebody picked us up. And then we all went our separate ways, hoping to survive on the streets. We thought that was better than residing in this facility that's being funded by the county. Yeah, I mean, that's so heartbreaking to hear. There's a lot of neglect, abandonment, and hurt from the system itself. And that's something I've seen as a foster parent, for sure. And it's even something I've struggled with is if the system is so broken, am I adding to it by being a foster parent at times? Just supporting the system that is so truly broken, it must have been really bad for you to decide that being totally on your own would be a better option. 
Right. And I don't want to encourage foster youth to just be like, oh, if you don't like your living situation, then just to leave. Right. That's not what I want to project onto our youth. But essentially, it did come down to the point of what is in my best interest in this moment? And it really was Natasha leaving and being on the streets, then being surrounded in this hierarchy of staff that were not supportive and and not healthy to be around. You wrote that you saw a lot of fights. You know, as you've mentioned, there was the drug dealing and even miscarriages. So were people just having to struggle through that without medical care? Or what did that kind of look like? I would state, yes, there was more of a medical resistance towards that whole facility. I mean, police officers and ambulances would be called there at least once a week or if not multiple times a week. And it got to a point where if you would make a 911 phone call, they would not show up because they got so many calls in which, you know, eventually would be resolved and then moved on the next day. And when I stayed, I witnessed miscarriages. Yeah, you are basically seeing the stress of that facility take place. That was incredibly hard to witness my friend who, I mean, had a baby bump at this point, was in second trimester, just go into the restroom. And there's a whole situation happening in there with the staff barely paying attention. It's a, it's a whole ordeal. It was a whole ordeal. But yes, I would say there was a medical reluctancy to that whole facility because of everything that which would occur. Wow, I'm like, I'm kind of speechless because, yeah, I cannot even imagine your friend having to go through that, like pretty much alone, it sounds like, you know, without any support. Wow. I remember one staff member, me and another youth in that, in maybe 20 to 30 minutes in which it, it started. And eventually, maybe an hour later, they took her to the hospital. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And then somehow as society, we turn around and tell these kids that it's your fault that you're not turning into successful adults when we're not giving them any of the skills or even baseline care, honestly, like not even treating them as a full human, right? Exactly. Yes. One in three people state they've been in the foster system who are homeless on the streets currently. And also the statistics, I don't know if this is still accurate or not, have stated 71% of women who age out of the system will become pregnant by the age of 21. So it's just like this cycle of unsupportive environments just constantly working away because, yes, here's the 17-year-old in this locked facility, goes through a miscarriage, no support afterwards, turns 18 a few weeks later. What are they supposed to do with their life? So, Natasha, you're right on it. It's a terrible thing that we as a society, think these are the people who are going to be disruptive, but they actually just are in lack of support due to their upbringing as a child. So you were out on the streets then. How did you navigate your way? What happened next? Oh, (laughs) a lot of couch surfing, maybe a few nights in a Walmart parking lot. It got to a moment where CPS my social workers were very concerned for my well-being that they called me and stated, if you come back, we will allow you to live with your biological family until we can find better options. And I stated, okay, that sounds fine. People from organizations who are directors would take me in as well, which unfortunately, which is a whole nother ordeal. But 
I actually even had a grooming situation occur between a director at an organization who took me in so I wouldn't be homeless. And they, it was a grown woman who tried to groom me and worked with youth. So it got to one of those kind of situations as well where I had to decide, do I want to stay in this grooming situation or go back to the streets? I'm just wondering, I guess, how, how do you still have, like after going through everything you've been through, and so many people just taking advantage. How how do you have a hope in humanity still? Like, what gives you that drive to want to still not only keep going towards your goals, but help others? Because I wake up every day and I know there is a foster youth out there going through the same exact thing. And that is what keeps me going every day. I wake up every day and just think about the youth and how I can better the system and better the lives of them so they can be supported. I felt extremely alone as if no one understood me when I was in the system. I do not want the youth in there currently to feel the same thing. I just want to continue fighting for the youth who aren't being raised like they should be by the government. And what is something that you would really want those youth to know? Like if you could talk to your former self, what are some of those things you would be saying? That's a good question. You have such a loud voice, use it. That's what I would say. To take your tribulations, take everything which is battling you right now, get angry about something, and project your voice to change it. I think it's the Chinese that say that anger turns into courage, which I really love. And I think that's exactly what you're talking about right now is, you know, anger can be something that is such a positive fuel and how you've been able to do that in a lot of ways. Can you talk us through that? So first at the facility, when I was 16 and surrounded by these youth who were teaching me what it meant to be powerful, it started with anger. It started with looking around and being mad. And I went to my high school like the next day and just found any adult who'd be willing to listen to me. And just said to them, this is a problem happening and we need to fix it. I don't know who you know, but you must know somebody who you can send to this facility to speak with the youth. So it just started with, yes, being angry, being mad, and just going to someone and spilling that out to them. Why am I angry? Why am I frustrated? How can we fix this? And I mean, it started with that moment of just going to my high school and finding the nearest adult and eventually to the mayor of Sacramento, Daryl Steinberg, when I bumped into him while volunteering at a warming center. I was not trying to speak with him actually, but um, I was trying to distract myself because I was a protester at this time as well. And the protesters as well as the city were not getting along. I just didn't want to have anything to do with a conversation with the mayor at that time. But when he approached me and started asking me some questions, I thought to myself, I'm never going to have the mayor in front of me ever again. So I'm going to talk about what I'm so passionate on, which is the youth within the city. And essentially, he just liked the resiliency in which I portrayed and offered me an internship on the spot. And I hope youth who listen can actually take note from that as well, whether you are scared to do something or you feel like you shouldn't talk to this individual, that by talking to that individual, 
it can just turn your whole life around and you could actually truly use your voice to make a change. And then you were commissioned by the city of Sacramento to do a public art piece. Can you talk about that? And you've mentioned before too, how art was just so important for you in getting your feelings out and being able to process some of what had happened to you. It was in an area in which I spent a lot of my homelessness roaming the streets, looking around at the art on Second Saturdays, which is an art showing that happens every second Saturday. I just decided I'm going to take this opportunity to implement something which represented the younger person I was at that time. I remember looking at the public art when I was 16, roaming the streets and feeling inspired. It gave me a sense of hope for myself, made me feel like, okay, everything's going to be just fine. Now, when I got this opportunity to pitch a art piece, I knew I wanted it to be about foster youth. I wanted the foster youth in the city to see this piece and see themselves within it and feel inspired like I once did when I was 16. And of course, at, at this point in which I'm speaking, I'm like 19 years old trying to do this art commission. And fortunately, the city did approve it and they did commission me for the exact spot in which I remember being a homeless kid. So that was like a full circle in which I will never forget in my life. And it taught me so much. But yes, my time in the system with my foster dad, as who was the art professor, I'm very fortunate for that whole experience because I really don't feel like I would have even gotten to that point of thinking I could do an art commission without that foster parent who taught me how to express my emotions in mixed media. And it's a beautiful art piece. Can you describe it to our listeners? Of course, it is a piece in which holds an individual and they are taking off their sweater, kind of unveiling this statement in which says one of 500,000. There is about 500,000 foster youth in the United States. This individual in the photo is showing how they are one of the 500,000 youth who are in the system. They're unraveling that part of themselves and exposing it to the public, which is something usually so secretive. It's also a very bright yellow piece because though I'm talking about the foster system, I didn't want it to look melancholy. So I added the yellow because my mother, I remember one point said to me, yellow is such a strong color. And I wanted that emotion to be portrayed the strong feelings of the foster youth, while also the recognition that there's so many, there's 500,000 in the United States. And then to the side, there's also a photo of a facility and there's just arms and legs coming out of this facility. You can see it's overfilled. It's to represent how overfilled the foster system is. We have so many foster youth, but barely any foster homes available. And then opposite to that side is a poem I wrote on my experiences within the facility. Would you be able to read that poem? This is the shelter. This is the sanctuary. The prison caging and locking. Reaching for something more. Building blocks brittle to the touch. Collapsing over you. This is the orphanage. The building blocks of false files. Overflowing, crowded, entrapping, and sealing, wishing to fly. This is the institution, a system, broken and untamed.
One of the most intimidating parts of foster parenting for me was when my home was investigated for child abuse by the Department of Human Services. When I was in foster parent training, they told us that if you foster long enough, it's not a matter of if you will be investigated, it's a matter of when. So how did my partner and I get through it? Honestly, it was a huge relief to have our agency support during that time. Kids Crossing is a private foster care agency in Colorado, and they had our home coordinator explain the process to us, and she was available to be present during our interviews. Kids Crossing even followed up on our case with child welfare so they could keep us updated. It was a huge relief to feel like we weren't going through the process alone. But to be completely honest, it can feel pretty discouraging to be investigated for false allegations after all the support you've provided as a foster parent. So it was also really encouraging to have our home coordinator repeatedly check in with us and normalize the experience for us. And knowing our agency could help us legally if needed was a huge stress reliever. Kids Crossing even sent us a thank you card to help us celebrate our home being opened up again. Kids Crossing welcomes diverse and non-traditional families. They have four locations across Colorado and Denver, Colorado Springs, Pueblo, and La Junta. Learn more about how you can become a foster parent at kidscrossing.com. And you've written, um, it's quite difficult to envision a better situation when you're going through the worst experiences, but patience and passion can take us to places we'd never believe to be true. Can you describe a moment that was one of those difficult moments and then how you were unable to envision a better future for yourself despite being in that really hard moment? Yeah, I can just recall being in that foster home in which stated to me, no one is ever going to love you and kind of locking me into my room. And I would just pick up a book. I I read The Alchemist. The Alchemist is still my favorite book to this day. Picking that up and reading it about a lonesome boy on his journey in life to find a hidden treasure somewhere just reading something which was fictional and which could take me somewhere else helped me to believe that everything was going to be okay. It was a strange feeling, but I essentially found who I wanted to be within the books that I read. And then I read like Malcolm X autobiography. And of course he was a former foster youth. And I didn't know that until I read that book and to see him go from this child of the system to one of our most phenomenal leaders in America, that was really inspiring and helped me to feel like, okay, I can move forward. I can keep going. Let's just see how things turn out. That's so beautiful. You're able to access, you know, art books and it was able to really open up your worldview. It seems in a situation where your worldview could have been so limited to what your potential could have been. I mean, what advice do you have for a foster parent or a foster care volunteer, you know, maybe a CASA, who is like seeing a lot of the unethicalness in the system that you've alluded to? How do you still support the system but not become part of that, part of what isn't working? Just calling out what you know is wrong. That is what we can do. Those who are within the system, who are kind of a part of that structure, just calling out what does not feel to be working and noticing, acknowledging actively all the good things the youth does, letting them know of all the good things that they are doing. 
not just letting the youth know that they're successful in this area, but telling the colleagues, telling the workers, letting it be known with those around them. Because as I stated, foster youth are constantly socialized to believe they have nothing to give in this life, whether it be by their social workers, by their foster parents, or by the court reports, which are written. Just that constant affirmation of you are doing a good job. Everything's going to be okay. That's where we can start really. I love that because I feel like too, as a foster parent, sometimes you're spending the most time with the kid, you know, for that moment in time that they're in your home and you're able to get a much more full picture than a caseworker who's maybe even been on their case for a few years, because, you know, very quickly you're going to have more hours with that youth or child than that caseworker has had over the last several years. And yeah, I think that's something that's so doable as a foster parent is to take that responsibility on of painting a more full picture of this child and maybe even asking certain things to be included in a child's file. And like you said, too, I mean, just letting that child know those things that you're seeing and doing that really frequently. Because I think just parenting in general, whether it's a biological child or not, it can be really easy to focus on what needs to be improved rather than, you know, what's already good and building on drinks that are already there. Right. And, you know, you just reminded me as well. It's also how we speak about the youth. It just popped up in my mind, a poster I saw a few months ago in Sacramento. It was a poster which read 4,000 abused and neglected foster youth in the Sacramento area. And it's a poster for promotion of foster parenting. And I just thought, hmm, that's very interesting. That's how they want to talk about the foster youth in which they're trying to obtain foster parents for is abused and neglected. So if only we could switch those words with intelligent, smart, <laughs> you know, um, it's also just how we speak on our youth and how we present them to the society because we can't keep projecting those type of words onto our kids. What's also interesting in that poster is those words are put even before the word youth or child or whatever. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Good And point. that's how it is. That's how it is. And even the term foster youth, foster kid. We had a, another former youth in care um, who was on the third episode of our podcast. At the very beginning of the episode, she schools me and she's like, you know what? I prefer the term youth in care or child in care in foster care because you're putting child first or youth first. And we need to remember that these people really are children and youth first. How sad that that poster has words before recognizing that this is a child at the end of the day. Yeah, our words really do have a lot of impact. And like you talked about too, several times now, like that one foster parent telling you that you're incapable of being loved. Our words are really powerful and and how sad that a lot of the time we don't use our words very wisely when talking specifically about this population of people. Right. And though I had to go through that sort of experience, it helped me to be better in my own social interactions with people. I make more of a note now to tell people like, oh, I love you. I care about you. I'm more of an affectionate human being because of that experience. But yeah, how terrible that a youth who is supposed to be supported is being told that at such a young age, especially when they don't have their family support. Something I've noticed is sometimes the system is not even willing to provide extra services for a child that 
the child desperately needs, whether it's like better psychiatric care or maybe a non-traditional school. But I actually ended up even going to court for a former child that was in my home to just advocate that this child receives a higher level of care. I had a letter prepared and everything um, that just really bulleted out like, hey, this kid is struggling and they deserve more. Just like we, any child deserves support. This child definitely deserves extra support. And then their answer was to cut off all communication between me and that youth, even though it was well-documented that it was a positive relationship just because they didn't want to spend the money, I think, or the time. What? Yeah. And I, I'm sure you've come across similar things. For sure. Yeah. So I guess... Do you have any thoughts or advice around like maybe if you're a foster parent and you've really done, you feel like everything you can to advocate, what's next? Because I know you've taken your voice to some big places. So if you have any advice for me in that situation or other foster parents who find themselves in a similar situation. You know, unfortunately, that is a common issue that we are experiencing within the system, not emphasizing the ideas in which people have, in which what is the best interest of the youth and actually them putting action to that. But my advice would just be to keep your arms open. So often can foster parents, because the system itself is retracting against what they have to say, feel as if they failed the youth or they're not doing a good job or it's not working. When it's just a system not tr trying to cooperate with those foster parents or with those CASA workers. Unfortunately, you can feel like you've been defeated or if nothing else is going to work. But as long as you just keep your arms open for the youth directly in terms of at least there's somebody who understands or knows what's in best interest of the youth and just move forward from there in whatever way possible you can go about it, then that will be helpful. I mean, there's only so much you can do within the grasp of the foster system because they have so many roles, so many regulations, and sometimes they're just not willing to push, but you can still decide to be with the youth on their journey in any way, as long as, as you can have them in your care or know them through somebody that they're currently working with. Before I became a foster parent, um, I really had no idea. <laughs> I used to be really judgmental of people who would like quit foster parenting after like a year or two. Cause I'm like, Oh, like how is that helpful for the system in general? Cause it takes a lot to get a parent like certified and trained and all of that. And then you're losing that knowledge. Like I feel like I'm so much a better foster parent than I was after the first placement we had or the second, the more I've been a foster parent, the more it seems like those families aren't closing their homes because of the kids themselves. It's more just because they're so frustrated with the system and how little they can really do to help in some situations. So I love that idea and that outlook of just, you know, just keep keep your arms open. Is there any other advice you have for foster parents in general, especially parents who maybe are accepting older youth into their home or youth who have some of the labels that even maybe you were labeled with at some point in the system? I'd say a lot of it is just going with your gut. There is no instruction manual and no foster youth walks into a home with an expectation on how exactly they would like to be raised because it's also a learning experience for them as well. They're walking in trying to figure out how they're going to assimilate to your living setting. So the ball is always in your park and to just let the youth find their way through. I had foster parents who were very social, uh, very 
very much communicate with me and ask questions like, how would you like me to introduce myself when we go out in public? What, do, do you want me to say foster mom? Do you want to say friend? What do you want me to say? And that was really helpful for me as a teenager because it's very different from raising a younger child in the system than a teenager. So when it comes to a teenager, just letting them set boundaries and understanding that there's no exact expectation. Go with your gut and what you think is right. And you'll find some equilibrium in that section. Patience as well. I would say patience. <laughs> Got to have patience. No, patience is a huge one. And I'm just curious, what would you say when people would ask, how would you like me to introduce myself when we're in public? And what an awesome question for them to ask you. Right. It was a good question when they asked it because I always felt like, oh, okay, this is good. You care about how I perceive our way of living. So I would stay foster mom, just say foster mom. I was still a very much activist. Even at that time, I would want people to know that I was in the system actually. So I could be vocal about it. And they would ask me questions in which I can help them through. So I, I didn't mind people saying, oh, I'm her foster mom, whatever. What are some other common situations that you found yourself in as a youth in care that you feel like you were maybe like really misunderstood and like what's something you wish the adults around you could have understood better? Hmm, that's a good one. <laughs> I would say a moment in which I felt very misunderstood was mostly in the section of my social workers. I felt very misunderstood by them because I was a runaway type of child if there was a situation going on in a foster home and I didn't feel as if the social workers were taking me serious, I would just run away from that home to get their full attention. And to the social workers, I just looked like a troublesome child who was running away from their foster home because they just didn't want to be there. But really, it was because some abusive things were happening within those homes in which I probably at that time didn't want to talk about, didn't want to communicate with them, or didn't know how to. So... I was essentially given the title of this troublesome runaway kid when really I'm just the victim of a larger story, just not willing or unable to share that part of my story with the people around me. So that's where I felt super misunderstood in the system is a lot of the time I was just on survival mode, but it looks like a mischievous child. No, that's so true. And I've seen that too um, in my own home. I've mentioned before on the podcast, we had a nine-year-old living with us and he would like, in quotes, like run away. But I, I say in quotes because he was so young, he just would stay with an eyesight. Like he didn't actually want to fully run away. He just wanted to like exit the house or the car or whatever. It's easy as a foster parent to look at that and be like, oh, this kid doesn't want to live with me or, you know, even like maybe doesn't even like me or whatever, doesn't want to be here. But I like how you explained, you know, your reasons for running away. Like he also had his own reasons. And usually it was just that he was so overwhelmed. He needed to like burn off some adrenaline and or he just felt like there was going to be a huge retaliation for a mistake he made or behavior he did. And he was scared because in the past, some adult caregivers had reacted in abusive ways when he had done something. So being able to look at that behavior through that lens, I think was just so important for me because I was able to meet him more where he was at. And instead of being like, you know, why did you run away? And like all of this stuff, just to be able to be like, you know what, I'm here when you're ready, you can come back inside. 
and we can talk whenever you're ready. I mean, there's some of these behaviors that seem really big, maybe for a caregiver, but really it's there's something behind that that's not always super apparent. Right. And it's also the approach in which is helpful to know in terms of handling that situation. You handled it exceptionally in terms of the people in my life when I would run away, just immediately retract to calling the police. So there's that difference of a foster parent who is reaching out to the youth who runs away and trying to communicate with them compared to the foster parent who just immediately goes to the police, 911, whatever, the social worker who's overseeing the youth. So you're right. It's it's just um, a balance on how you approach a situation like that and which could define the outcome. That's a good point. And I do want to say in certain situations, you do have to make certain calls. Otherwise, you'll lose your foster parenting license. But I, I definitely agree with you that there is sometimes a more triggering way to deal with a big behavior or a way that will actually elevate that behavior even more because you're making a child or youth feel even more unsafe versus a way that you can de-escalate a behavior and lead to some better understanding or trust between both of you. And it's hard. As foster parents, we often don't get it right. Anything else you could share, I guess, that would help maybe a foster parent um, better understand a youth that might be in their home? Just that if you are taking in older youth who are about to turn 18, at that point of 14 to 18, they the youth are not looking for to be, to be raised. The youth are not looking to find a forever home at that point. I, I wouldn't say that's not their main goal. In that age range, they're looking for someone to help them become an adult, for someone to help them with basic support. I would hear from my friends who were in the foster system that they didn't get their licenses until they were like 18, 19, 20 years old. I didn't get my license until I was 18 years old. And that really held us back a lot from trying to go far in our lives was, oh, we don't even have this basic thing that everyone else got when they were 15, 16 years old. So just focusing on how can I set this youth up for success in terms of getting them their ID, getting them their driver's license, rather than trying to support them and as a parent of like overall nurturing, trying to be the, the one person they go to in a situation, just be the person who's going to lay out those resources for them. So when they do become 18, they can be successful. So often our foster parents so nervous on saying the right things, just put that to the side and try to make sure that they're getting what they need at that point of their lives. So it sounds like for older youth, there's really a focus on practicality. What are some real tangible ways that you can set them up for their future? Exactly, because that was the main complaint I heard from my friends who had turned 18 after residing in the system was, oh, I don't know how to really do my taxes. I don't know how to drive a vehicle. So it was those basic things like that. And of course, there were some complaints on how the foster parent could have approached them or or spoken with them. But really, it was that major point of how can I be an adult in society? So let's say a youth is having some big behaviors in a foster home. 
What do you think would be a good opener to have a conversation to lead to some greater understanding rather than something that would put a youth on a defensive? Yeah. So I would say older foster youth like to make their own decisions or they like to feel as if they're making their own decisions. I would have foster parents who are great in communicating with me because they would say things like, hey, I'm going to be out on the dining table having a coffee. If you want to come join me for some coffee, I'd love to chat. So it's that point of leaving it open for the youth to come to the dining table for a coffee, for a chat. Not really directly saying what it's about or saying, hey, can we talk? Or we need to have this conversation right now. Like those are very forward. But if you you say something like, oh, I'm going to go for a walk to the park. If you want to come on this walk with me, and they'll ultimately feel like, oh, okay, I, I can decide on if I want to partake in this or not. And then once they're there in that setting, you can open up the discussion in a way in which is you, you feel is comforting for that youth because all of them work differently. But I would just say that leave it open and leave it open in a way in terms of they can choose to go or not. And just keep doing that, reiterating it until it comes to a point of more of a direct tone. And what's great too about both examples that you mentioned is when you're having a coffee, like that's nice because you have something to drink and it's something that's nice and warm and comforting and you can like, you know, break eye contact to be able to sip your coffee. And then with the walking to the park, that's also another great example because I mean, studies show too, when you're like walking together in stride, you feel more connected to somebody else. And again, you're having a different activity. So it's not just the talking, which can help it feel probably more relaxed, right? Right. And I was going to say, find something that youth likes to do and have that thing sort of be in their area. If they are more of an artsy kid, then have it be an art thing that you guys can can do. Like, oh, I'm, I'm doing this poster. Do you want to help me do this poster? Or if they are more of an action person, maybe it's the the basketball courts at the school, whatever. So it's a lot better when it's what the youth likes to do. I want to add that as well. No, that's great. And then also just giving them the option for when they're ready. Exactly. That's really great. Is there anything else too that you want to mention that you would like youth and care to know? Because like you've mentioned, you know, there's a lot of youth that you know, feel really hopeless. And I've seen that too, as a foster parent, just like, I mean, there's really high levels of depression and it's really understandable when you think about everything these youth have lived through. Just being a teenager in general is not easy. (laughs) Like your body's changing, you have hormones and figuring out who you are. Yeah. And then to have all of the other challenges of being in the system on top of that. I mean, I'm sure it feels very crippling at times and like overwhelming. So yeah, what are some of those other things you would want these youth to know? I would want the youth to know all of us can go to a university to learn professionalism, to learn marketing, to learn how to sit in a room and note take, how to participate in society. We can learn it. It's out there for us to absorb and we can utilize. But not everybody can go to the university of the foster system or go to the university of all the experiences that we've gone through, all the tribulations we've had to face is not a university that anybody can just take up. So 
really, I mean, the podcast is called Just As Special, but I would say foster youth are even more special because we can learn that professionalism and then bring something completely new to the table because of our own personal experiences in our lives. We can have things to say in which somebody else in the room may not say because they just don't know. That's what makes us super powerful as former foster youth, current foster youth, that we have lived a totally different life than most of society. And it's not a bad thing. It's actually, I would consider a gift. Wow. Yeah. And I think anytime you can harness some of the really dark, hard things in your life into something really beautiful, I mean, what a gift that is to everyone around you. And you're right. There's so much power coming from those deep places um, that, you know, you can't replicate. You're, you're exactly right. Like no one can can fully understand or have that perspective that those youth have. So I know you're majoring in sociology. You're now the president of a national council. I mean, what do you see in your future? What are you working towards? I always just work towards making sure the youth voices are being heard. That in whatever way possible, I can walk in this life and just state what's happening, which can be fixed. And actually, I'm trying to venture out into more um, broad areas such as homelessness and drug addiction, not just foster youth, but connecting the foster system with the, the drug addiction, with the homelessness, and meeting those other areas as well. I'm not sure on what my future holds, but I really would like love to be there for the people, for the community, and maybe still dive into the artistic side of me as well. I think anytime you can integrate two seemingly different things, it's just so much more powerful, like the art and then the power of your voice. I mean, you know, those came together so beautifully in the art piece you did. Thank you. I'm excited for your future. I mean, I'm just, I'm blown away. I was already blown away from you through our email correspondence um, and just how professional you were. And you've already done so much and lived through so much. I mean, I can't even imagine. I'm really excited to see where the future takes you. Thank you so much, Natasha. And thank you so much for sharing your story and for reaching out. I'm so glad our paths have crossed. Is there anything else you'd like to add? For foster parents who are taking in any minor, I would say how important it is to take that minor on a little shopping spree once they enter your home almost immediately. I just have this terror story of my first foster home. I entered it with just the clothes on my back and no nothing else. They didn't give me a bag or let me go home and pick any of my things up. They just took me and put me in the system. So I stayed in my same clothing for 10 days and would wash my clothes in the sink and wait for them to dry when I got out of the shower. And I just think to myself, oh my gosh, I hope this is not still happening with our youth in the system. So if you are a foster parent or reside in the system, just making sure that when that youth enters that first home, that they have everything that they need so they can just go and not have to worry about washing their clothes in a sink. To be honest, I'm still searching for the right words to describe how this interview with Sophie impacted me because it did so, so deeply. I think it really relit a fire in my belly for wanting more for kids who are in the system. 
it just really highlighted how these kids are deserving of so much more than they're currently getting. And there's so much more work to be done. But it was also just so inspirational for me to hear from Sophie, someone who's experienced some of the worst of humanity, to still have a hope in humanity and to know that more is possible. Sophie truly just really blew me away just in the generosity of her sharing her story and her tireless work to make things better for youth in the system. Also, in light of what Sophie shared at the end there, that really horrible having to wash and rewash her clothes over and over again. We've actually put up a guide on our website of things that foster parents can do in the first 24 hours a child is placed in your care to make that transition a bit smoother for them. So you can visit justaspecial.com for that and other foster care resources, as well as to see photos of Sophie's art installation for the city of Sacramento and a link to her writing, which we referred to in this interview. You can also connect with Sophie on Instagram at this period is period Sophie and Sophie is spelled S-O-P-H-I. And I really encourage you to connect with her. She is a force to be reckoned with in the best way. And I just know that there's really big things coming her way in her future. So thank you again to our special guest, Sophie. And this episode pairs nicely with our episode number four called How Do I Escape This? As always, we love hearing from you. Please give Just a Special a follow and review on Apple Podcasts. Those few seconds can actually make a massive difference in helping spread foster care awareness. That's a wrap. This podcast is produced by Kelton Reed and New Media Jojo. Something that really surprised me as a foster parent is how complex foster parenting is. That's why I'm really thankful that I'm licensed by an incredible agency that goes above and beyond to make sure their foster families are supported. Most foster parents close their home within two years and many quit within their first year. So having extra support is really helpful. I don't think my partner and I would have made it past the two year mark without our agency's support. Kids Crossing retains more than 80% of their foster families, and I'm really not surprised by this. Kids Crossing has provided us with many free services, including therapy for the kid in our care, parenting coaching, interesting online trainings, in-home family preservation services, and a home coordinator who acts as a buffer between us and the foster care system, and so much more. What's really great is that all of these services are offered in-house by Kids Crossing. So our child's team is all aware of our current challenges and successes, and they all use the same trauma-informed therapeutic model, which means we're all speaking the same language. It's a huge time saver to not have to find all of those services on my own, and it gives me more time to play with the kid in my care. So what are you waiting for? Kids Crossing welcomes diverse and non-traditional families. They have four locations across Colorado, in Denver, Colorado Springs, Pueblo, and La Junta. Learn more at kidscrossing.com.